survive in this country wilderness. Swimming through the waters of Babylon like a rebel fish. Jogging specialist, predator and survivalist. Spinning heaven, fight from his lips. Burn the driver. Time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. The history and current events program from a cultural perspective, we find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timepointawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. It gets the live stream there also. You can go to abitumi.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream out of Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. In that TuneIn Radio app, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream your program live even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening Radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn Radio app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program with the fan page on Facebook. And Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening Media. Interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.07 here on this uh, fall Sunday evening, November the 6th, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, historian of African-American history, history consultant for the Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and the founder and director of the Slave Dwelling Project, Mr. Joseph McGill, is with us in conversation this evening. We'll be talking about our enslaved uh, former ancestors and the rebellions, enslaved rebellions of the Atlantic world. It'll be an interesting conversation this evening with our guests. 
And you can join the conversation with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. 
History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. <clears throat> it's 7-12 in the city of Philadelphia on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine and definitely looking forward um, for the conversation with um, Mr. McGill and, and, you know, once again, um, recognizing someone's work that we um, should praise, honor, and and have the opportunity to learn from and share, um, because that it, it's it's uh, as I look over the slave the slave dwelling, I was looking into the conference. Um, um, it's it's really it, what he's done is really um, commendable, and and I I want to make sure um, myself and hopefully the time for waking audience you know, commend him for the work he's doing. You know, it ought to be an interesting conversation to uh, go down this path. Um, we had uh, 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 Brother McGill on when we were on Terrestrial Radio, Richard, and this was, uh, it might have been 11 years ago, uh, mm. myself and, and uh, Reggie at the time. So it'll be interesting to kind of <laughs> reacquaint myself uh, with uh, Brother McGill. I've, I've seen his work, been following it over the years, and uh it's good to have him back with us. Our guest this evening, historian of African-American history, history consultant for the Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and founder and director of the Sw- Slave Dwelling Projects. Joseph McGill is with us. Brother McGill, how are you, sir? I am I'm, I'm well. Thanks for the invitation. And I think I can recall that first time. I do believe I was there in Philadelphia physically um, when, when that happened, if... I recall correctly. Well, listen, I'm glad to have you back. At the time when you were on, then we had a, uh, I had another co- uh, co-host at the time, but now I got a kindred spirit of yours. Brother Richard is uh, at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia. He's also uh, uh, with Eden Cemetery, which is a historic uh, African American cemetery where a lot of our ancestors are, are interned. So, uh, uh, Brother Richard, Brother McGill. Oh, hello, hello. Hey, all right. And Ellie always trying to trying to make you know doing this here, make it, which is all good because we're all in um in the I don't want to call it a business, but in the effort of trying to make sure that our position in the historical narrative is done correctly. Well, we, we oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Excuse me. Well, we got to treat it like a business because because their their enslavement of our ancestors was a business. Yeah, um, so you know we've got to um, uh, we got to use some of those same tactics to make sure that the the stories of our enslaved people, um, formerly well enslaved people for the time that they were here, we got to make sure they are truly 
represented. And, um, you know, sometimes you can't do that for free. Not, not always. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, that, that's what keeps it, keeps it going. Hey, when I said I, w- I was there physically, I'm, I did not meet in your presence seeing eye to eye. I think I was staying at a place in Philadelphia, uh, Cliveden, um, uh, uh, Cliveden, as 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 you uh, Philadelphians choose uh, to pronounce it. Um, so um, I think I was I was there when I made the call. Okay. If indeed this, yes. Oh, okay. You know, b- b- before we get started, because I I, I do want to uh, kind of focus in on the uh, some of the things that you talked about in the uh, uh, the Stono Rebellion in the Atlantic world. I, I want. I do want to mix in some of the other uh, of our ancestors in slave rebellions in that same Atlantic world. But before we get to that, let me t- uh, kind of refresh uh, our audience with your work. You know, when you were on with us uh, years ago, uh, Brother McGill, uh, you were dealing with slave uh, cabins, and you were uh, spending time in there, you're sleeping. Uh, looking at some of the things that our ancestors might have left, uh, basically doing archaeological work. I would, I would, I would uh, categorize it. But now um, the title has changed somewhat to slave dwellings. Uh, talk about the difference uh, between slave cabins or the dwellings, because I know it, it really means something. But go ahead, the floor is yours. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, 12 years ago when I started, um, came up with this crazy idea of sleeping in slave dwellings because, um, one could go to his, an historic site and you could hear all about the nice, beautiful big house and all of, all of this archi- um, archival architectural significance, um, but you would not hear about the stories of the people of whom I derived my DNA, you know, the enslaved people, the people whose labor was stolen to make all that possible, the people who physically built that place. You know, they were not the architects, but they built it. They did the, you know, they did the heavy lifting, they, and they did that precise work that needed to be done for that architecturally significant house to exist, to be there. But we were not hearing their stories. Uh, and in some attempts to tell that story, they were uh, portraying them as happy and um, the enslaved people as happy and, them, and their ancestors or the, the white owners, the enslavers, as being benevolent. Um, they were disingenuous to the story, to our ancestors. Um, so working at the time for a national organization that preserved buildings, usually those nice iconic buildings. I knew that the buildings were there. I knew that all it had, all that needed to be done was to bring more attention to those places. And being a civil war reenactor at the time and going to historic sites and uh, going and sleeping at these places after battle reenactments and going from camp to camp and talking to folks. And I, I knew that, you know, just a simple act of sleeping in a slave cabin would bring attention to those places. So now, 12 years later, with the intent of doing it for one year in the state of South Carolina, I've gone to 25 states and the District of Columbia spending nights in slave dwellings. And one of those states has been uh, Pennsylvania because slavery ended in Pennsylvania in 1783. 
Um, and Pennsylvania had a rule on the books that said, if you enslave a person for six months, you have to free that person. Some Pennsylvanians would enslave them for five months and some change in the back down south, uh, bringing a new batch start the process all over. Even our President George Washington, one of 12 slavery-winning presidents, practiced that when he was in our nation's capital of Philadelphia. So I stayed in Columbia in a slave dwelling. Uh, well, that was a bank. I stayed at uh, Lansdale uh, in a slave dwelling, and I've stayed at uh, Cliveden or Cliveden, and I've also stayed at uh, Stinton in Philadelphia. Uh, and still going. Mr. McGill, when... when uh... Like in the South, they had separate uh, dwellings for our ancestors. Um, but when they, um, you know, some of our ancestors that uh, that lived in the house, so to speak, their dwelling in the house wasn't like they had a bedroom that was down the hall or whatever. They did they slept in an attic or what we considered the cro- uh, the basement. Um, Am I right, or or how how did this go when they lived in in the so called house? Well, yes, you are right. Usually, the attic or the basement, and that's why some of the spaces that I seek have been saved by default. Because in their effort to save the nice, beautiful big house, they usually save the spaces of our enslaved ancestors also. So I get access to those places and come and 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 I'm able to do what I do in those spaces. Um, so of course, sleep there is is the uh, what I pivot on. But now we've added to that. We've evolved. Now we uh, have these conversations, these camp these campfire conversations before the sleepover, and we talk about things. We talk about uh, white supremacy, white privilege, historical trauma, uh, the death of George Floyd, and more recently, uh, anti CRT. So, um, so we in in fact, about two nights ago, I was in. Uh, well, last night, no, the night before, I was in um, I was in Savannah, and we had one there uh, in the city limits, uh, where urban slavery in in a southern state was was happening. Uh, slave society. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Brother McGill, the let me ask this because you you've been around to several states. You mentioned 25 of them and slept where our ancestors did hundreds of years ago. Yes. Can you tell uh, just from being there and maybe seeing some artifacts that might still be around or or even if you dug in the soil, um, our ancestors still tried to hold to cultural practices that they had when they came to these shores. I would assume, and, and you can help me with this, that when you went, and slept in some of the slave dwellings that were separate from the quote-unquote big house. Uh, t- tell us, how did our ancestors house themselves? How did they sleep? And when I say how did they sleep, uh, you know, you, you might see all types of things categorizing our, our ancestors living on a plantation. I would assume, and I, I need you to clarify this, just say, for example, if you had a, couple that were married then they stayed together in the cabin but if you had single women did they have a separate dwelling the single men stayed in a separate dwelling how 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 did that function on a plantation well it it varied from plantation to plantation um you know there, there comes a point where the enslaver 
uh, is going to reach a point of saturation, meaning that, uh, you know, he's going to have enough enslaved people to, to get the job done. Uh, after 1808, it becomes illegal to import people into this nation for the purpose of enslaving them. So now the enslavers are going to uh, uh, take more care of the um, ones that he are he is enslaving. He is go he's going to encourage bonds, uh, not necessarily marriages, but bonds. Uh, uh, you're in a position where you can, you know, you could choose your own mate. That that uh, that enslaver is not going to object to that because out of that he gets a he gets a product, he gets a child. Um, and 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 um, you know, I'm, I got to apologize to the audience. I got to I got to speak in the terms that you know these enslavers would have been thinking in their heads. I, I use the word word product. I know I'm talking about uh, our enslaved ancestors here, um, but um, but but but. But he reaches that point of saturation, and at some point in the uh, in the existence of that enslaved person, he's going to have to pay taxes on him or her, usually around the age of 12. So he's going to be making a decision. Um, is he going to keep this person in, in his or her in, well, his inventory and pay taxes on him, or is he going to sell that person and, you know, get the get the uh, value out of that person and let somebody else worry about those taxes. Another thing is this, right around the age of 12, that's the age that the, uh, that a, a young lady can start having children. And that means added value, which also means more incentive to sell. There's also this. Um, up until 1808, when it was legal to import people into this nation for the purpose of enslaving them, they were importing mostly men and they were working them to death. If they were placed in a mining situation, their life expectancy was three years. If they placed them on a sugarcane plantation, it was five years. Mm-hmm. They placed them on a rice plantation, it was seven years. So they're, they're working them to death. They're not reproducing these, these men they're bringing out of Africa. But the few women that they are, women that they are bringing out of, out of Africa are producing, of course, non-consensual relationships with white men. Um, so now, after 1808, it becomes illegal to import them. So you're going to take better care of your enslaved people, meaning you call in the doctor at least once a year. Um, you're going to um, have the enslaved population who's familiar with medicinal herbs. Um, you're going to have those uh, enslaved people trained to be uh, midwives because you want those children to be born, and you're not working them under that gang style anymore after 1808. That gang style is working them from sunup to sundown, working them to death. That accounts for, you know, those short lifespan. <clears throat> so after 1808, you work them on the task system. Tasks are designed to last eight hours. Now you're working them eight hours a day, and they have their Sundays off. So, um, um, but here's the thing. When you can't Imported many more after 1808. Some go into the breeding business, which goes back to the root of your question: Are they, are these people living in uh, family units, or are they living in a dormitory type situation? It varied from plantation to plantation. George Washington, President George Washington, uh, he had them living in a dormitory type. Uh, situation, but most of the places that I go, that I've visited, that I've slept in, uh, were family units. And for the field hands, the small cabins are usually duplexes. The chimney is in the middle, and it, it points to both, st- both sides, and there's a wall in the middle. 
um, <clears throat> and the spaces are not very big. So it's a complicated answer to your question because it varies from plantation to plantation. You know, you you just mentioned something, and I, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit before we start talking about the uh, rebellions. Uh, and me and Richard talked about this maybe about three weeks ago, and I know you remember the conversation, Richard, about right. some of the largest breeding, and, and I hate using that term when I'm talking about our ancestors, but that's what the situation that they were in. The largest breeding plantation, one of them was in Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. You help me with this, uh Mr. McGill, uh, where you just had men that the enslavers had just going around uh, to several women on the plantation just impregnating, having sex, impregnating them. That was their job. To talk about that, because I understand one of the largest ones was in Virginia. Yeah, that's you know that, that's that's that this is that subject matter that got uh, Jimmy the Greek in trouble. You know, um, when he was sport when he was a sport sports caster and um he alluded to you know what you just said when someone someone asked you know why are black athletes more athletic than whites and he went back to the plantation uh in, in the fact that the uh enslavers were selectively breeding um people and and, and that is that is true um and, and if one did not have uh, a stud in his um, in his population of slave of enslaved people he could he could rent one um, you know after 1808 again some people go into the to the breeding business you take a state like Kentucky you know the, the you know the geographic location of Kentucky uh, and way the the business worked you know that was a, a prime place for 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 breeding operations uh, but you take a state like Virginia once upon a time their number one export was tobacco. Well, when they couldn't grow tobacco anymore, their number one export then became people. And another thing about that is this. Um, where these um, enslavers established themselves on the East Coast um, and, and, and then come the invention of the cotton gin, um, Eli Whitney invents the cotton engine. Gin is short for engine. So he invents the cotton gin. And his way of thinking is, well, I invented this cotton gin uh, to separate the cotton from the seed. Now we need less manpower. Well, the enslaver thinks differently because now he's armed with manifest destiny in the Louisiana Purchase. All this land is now available. We, the, the natives have been purged or in the process of being purged. And, and, and where the natives get purged, then the colonizers go in and do what the colonizers did. Um, and they and, and these sons of enslavers, not in line to inherit what their fathers have established on the East Coast, go westward with a contingency of, of enslaved people, breaking up these families. Um, uh, and here's another thing about the situation. If you're in the market to buy an enslaved, an enslaved person, you're not in the market to buy a whole family. You want one enslaved person. You want one able-bodied enslaved person. You don't want a whole family. And and a lot of families were, you know, were, were broken up through those uh, those means also. So I'll stop right there. I know there there are more opportunities for other questions. You know, before I pass the mic to Brother Richard, I've seen in a uh, one of the presentations that you gave that when you uh, go to some of these dwellings, and I'm not necessarily talking about the, the the enslaved cabins, but I'm talking about the dwellings where some of the plantation owners and quote unquote masters lived 
that the bricks, when you put your hand and you kind of showed it, you could see that the bricks were made by children. Talk about that before I pass the mic to Brother Richard. Yeah, um, you know, there there are a lot of you get a we get a lot of excuses from places that say, well, we don't we don't t- we don't tell the stories of the enslaved because we have no no evidence of them. Um, well, I said I I said, well, you're wrong. Um, look at those those same the, the same documentation, same archival archival material that you use to tell the story that you're now telling. Um, look at it differently. Look at it; those letters when they talk about an enslaved person, what in whatever manner they talk about them, about or selling them, or having to discipline them, or 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 they died, or you just acquired someone. Pull those things out of those letters. You know, look at those tax documents because you have to pay taxes on them. Um, Look at those uh, records of bankruptcy. They were property. They were listed with the other property. Look at, pull those things out of there. Um, if you're in a graveyard, of course, our graves are not usually not marked. Uh, if we were lucky enough to have been buried in a box, then that the top of that the box would eventually get and the earth on top of it would, would conform. Sometimes you can um, find graves that way if you know what to look for. But another telltale sign is fingerprints and bricks because enslaved people made bricks. And the way they made bricks was, you know, the old fashioned way. You got to, uh, you got to, uh, conform, you make the clay conform. You got to get it to the right consistency. You, 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 you're using your hand, you're putting them in these molds and, uh, you know, to get be dry by the sun, and you you got you got to turn it over. You got to take it out of that mold. And sometimes these bricks are are, are still a little pliable, or malleable, and you know you leave fingerprints in those bricks sometimes. So I go around looking for these fingerprints because that's the evidence of our enslaved ancestors saying, you know, we were here, tell our story. So. Yeah, I look for those fingerprints in those bricks or those axe marks in those uh, logs or beams that are uh, holding that house or, or, or the frame of that house. Every axe mark that, that you see in there was was placed there by, was it's highly likely that it was, was placed there by an enslaved person. Richard? You know, um, again, um, Mr. McGill, um, thank you. And, and 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 something that you said when we opened up on and making sure that I understand that about the business and um and what I want I I'm going to ask you questions from the from the perspective of as you say telling our our narrative enslaved people in, in North America particularly or in the Atlantic Hemisphere. And I'm interested in this because, you know, 2026 is coming along and they're going to be celebrating the 250th anniversary of the making of, you know, the nation, the American nation state. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask this as a question to you who have been in this um, uh, more intensely longer than I, um, do you think it's important for us to have our, our own narrative of our experience as enslaved people and our historical journey um, over these last, um, which will be 250 years, and how that may depart from those who have been giving the historical narrative of, of, Af- of, of our, you know, African people who have been enslaved. So is, uh, how important is that to you that we have an interpretation, especially those of us 
who um, make it our livelihood, our, you know, vocation to uh, interpret um, our experience. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite important because, you know, they, they, they were, they were doing it and they did it all wrong. They, they, uh, for, for uh, a spell there, they, they excluded us. Um, and, and when they put us in there, they made us, uh, they made us happy slaves and, and they made themselves benevolent slave owners. And now they're trying to take us back to that place through this thing they call anti-CRT, mm-hmm. um, saying they don't, they don't want the kids to hear the truth or, you know, their, their feelings might get hurt or, or um, they, they might hate America. I think what they're trying to do, these uh, people who are making these decisions, these, these political decisions, is they're trying to hide their contributions to uh, letting this system persist under their watch. Um, because, you know, if you, if, if you look at photographs of, of lynchings, uh, and there are plenty out there. I know the last time I put one on my Facebook page, they, they restricted me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there, there, there are photographs of, 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 of people at lynchings marveling at what they just did. Um, you know, there are accounts of lynchings where, where uh, an audience of 10,000 people uh, in Minnesota, of all places, um, uh, you know, audiences gather to, uh, to see people lynched. And that's some of the people who are maybe still alive. They might be real, very old right now, but certainly the children of those people are alive. And and, and, and they're some of the ones who are making those decisions that saying they don't want those, their kids to, to, to know that element of their history. Or they don't want the kids to know that they were a party to that, that they allowed it to persist. That's 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 another reason they, they don't want the kids 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 hearing that because a lot of what the, what has been done to us is now visual uh, a lot of it you can um uh and, and another thing about banning books is this <laughs> a lot of what what exists out there now that's available to people is not digital everybody walks around with a little computer in their pocket mm-hmm. and anything can be challenged there on the spot but back to the root of the question um yeah it is, it's it's very important that we tell our stories um, because um, uh, un- until we started giving pushback um, to the story that they were telling, you know, we were, uh, we were less than to them. We were less than in their eyes. And, you know, what they thought about us was passed down to their descendants and to their descendants. So it's still, exist there's still that element of a colonizing mind among us and now it's being shown in the attempt to push back a uh, hold back the um the, the change that's coming the um uh, this 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 uh, this demographic shift that's coming um you know the majority the white majority is being threatened right now because uh, in in the uh, what's going to replace them is a collection of others, uh, and 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 those others are, 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 are those things they legislate against, or those people they legislate against, as in closing the border, or in suppressing their votes, are yeah. So, so the fear is there, um, and they're doing everything to uh, kind of lock in their power, 
as in not um, choosing a judge um, under Obama's term because it was an election, but then choosing a judge and within two or three weeks when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Mm. So they're, 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 they're trying to hold on to that control um, in any means possible. And in holding on to that control uh, means that they will go as far as nominating Herschel Walker um, to hold on to that control. Um, so we're in a place where now we gotta we 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 gotta we gotta tell our history because there is that attempt to mute it. There is that attempt to take it back to the place where I, when I sat in a classroom and learned about happy slaves and benevolent slave owners, they're trying to take us back to that place, and that's not a good place to be. That's a sunken place, and um, I think we should do everything within our powers to make sure that the real stories of our enslaved ancestors are told, not their whitewashed version that keeps them in a comfortable place. And, and you know, and, and I have two um, questions, and, I, and, and, and I appreciate your response, that I wanted to, you know, in this, in this perspective of creating this narrative, and, and you had mentioned about, you know, as you go to these um, dwellings and you have these discussions and the topics that you're that you get to raise um, at these different places. The other thing that um, Elliot and myself, we also been having this discussion and Elliot made reference to it. um, The distinction between a slave society um, and a society with slaves. And, you know, again, in this narrative, this historical narrative from the perspective of the enslaved Africans, um, those who are under chattel and those who are relatively free. Um, would you agree that America um, had um, two types of, of systems of, you know, a slave society of the South and a society with slaves of the North? Would that be a, uh, from your experience and in, in even going to different dwellings, is that an um, accurate characterization of <clears throat> Of, of the American um, political and economic as it relates to um, human property that are yeah. African. Yeah, but you got to separate it by time frame. Okay. Because, because, you know, there was a, there was a period in history where, where all those existed in all those places, all, all this, you know, we as, as 13 colonies, all 13 colonies were in on it, on, 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 on slavery. And then there's a, there's a period after the revolution where, the northern states start legislatively um, freeing their people. Mm-hmm. For the south, of course, you know, it, it took a war for them to, to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but here's another thing that we got to take into account is, is that even after the north um, freed their people legislatively, we got we to gotta first <laughs> kind of figure out, well, the law said they couldn't, they couldn't enslave them. Did, did it say they couldn't sell them down south to recoup their worth or their value? Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so, so there's that. But, but here's an important thing is even after they free their enslaved people legislatively, they were still complicit because all the banks that were holding mortgages to the, to, to a lot of these enslaved people were in Northern States. Um, uh, the, the insurance companies that were insuring them were in Northern States. The, um, the ship owners 
uh, the places the ships were being built were in northern states. The factories that were adding value to the cotton that was being picked was in northern states. In fact, when South Carolina seceded from the Union on December 20th of 1860, for a brief moment, New York considered seceding because of its financial investment <laughs> in in slavery. So you're right. Um, you got to, but you got to, you just know that at one point in history, those uh, that system uh, existed mm-hmm. everywhere. Now, mm-hmm. even in and even in the southern states, there were free blacks, um, um, but that freedom is was not free. I mean, a lot of restrictions. Uh, you know, we we think that we get harassed by the police. <laughs> you know, back then, that freedom was was you know that came at a cost, and in a a good percentage of them were mulattoes. Um, so there's that. I, I, I hope I. Oh yeah. 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 Yes, definitely. And, and, and expand it. And I think it's important again, you know, to, to um, deal with this, to get a, a, a handle of how we should um, narrate and understand, especially as we move through, which goes to my next question. Um, and, and again, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm looking from your experience and, and your interaction over, over the years around this because, and, um, we, you know, as we go into dealing with, say, the rebellions and whatever, I'm thinking that, um, um, and I don't want to say I'm thinking, but, you know, the point of African people have always been resisting these forms of enslavement, but it doesn't come across as the, resistance uh, or the liberation struggle as we deal with the Atlantic, especially in the Atlantic world, is a long, continuous struggle, especially um, from the islands into North America and, you know, especially in the South, South America and and, and in Florida. Um, So I'm asking, should we look at when we, even when we bring up names like Denmark VC or Nat Turner or or the um, the Stono Rebellion, should we look at those as a continuation, even up to today, as a continuation of a long struggle uh, initiated and continued by African people in the name of freedom or liberation? I'm asking that is that a quote unquote I heard the term somewhere, Negro Atlantic liberation struggle. Um, should we look at it from that vantage point? Is that appropriate from your vantage point? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, since, since we, um, we sent, well, I can't say since we set foot on this nation, you know, there, there's, there's, there's scholarship out there that said that we were here before, long before the Europeans um, were here. But since they brought us here, uh, start there. Since since they brought us here, they have um, made laws and rules that continue to disenfranchise us of all of our God-given rights, for those of you who believe. Um, so, uh, you know, if we, if we look at the, if we look at the Declaration of Independence, 41 signers of that Declaration of Independence were slave owners. 25 signers of the United States Constitution were slave owners. 12 of our former presidents 
were slave owners. Um, the Constitution had to be amended many times to include us. Um, so we, you know, we were kind of written into this thing um, in, in order for, for some or one to be superior uh, or, or supreme, as in uh, a supremacist, there has to be someone he thinks is less than. And to, to get his mindset in that mode, you had the clergy who was supporting him in his uh, effort to enslave people. Uh, you know, making the doctrines that said it's, it was okay. And you had the uh, the lawmakers making the laws to ensure that the system was going to be in place to ensure its perpetuity because it's chattel. Again, not only you are you enslaved, but your children and your children's children will be enslaved. Um, and then you had your education people, your scientists and, and your educators, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, paternalism and uh, it, it's worthy, you know, they're in their proper place, the size of their brain is um, is, 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 is off or, or the, their propensity to run away is a, is a, is a, a mental, um, a, a mental issue that we'll, we'll label drapetomania. Um, so we, we have all these, all these elements, you know, um, feeding in to, uh, you know, feeding into this system. So, and, and we've got this, we, we've, we've got this early police force that are patrolling, uh, you know, these plantations. Um, uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're off the plantation without a pass, you're a freedom seeker or a runaway. And that's one of the reasons they kept you uneducated because they don't want you writing a pass, you know, that you would pass, you know, that you would show to someone that's probably less educated than you are. <laughs> um, so, um, they, they, they didn't want that. So they've always kept us in check, even with that 13th amendment and, in in the, in the freedom that it gave us, the, the physical freedom that it gave us, you know, there's a clause in there that says, unless you're a criminal, mm-hmm. unless you're a criminal. So they've, Oh, there's always been this effort to disenfranchise us, even after, um, even after 1865. You know, even after the Thirteenth Amendment, those things that replace slavery, like KKK and lynchings and convict labor and redlining and poll taxes and Jim Crow laws and and, and black codes and disenfranchisements and massacres. So yeah, we are always on the defensive. Um, so 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 we've got to we've got to you know keep our guards up um, because they they're, they're always throwing something at us. Right now it's voter suppression um, in, in in you know the the mass incarceration that uh, uh, you know that that we're that we're dealing with the wealth gap the wealth gap that was brought on by slavery. You know, for them to acquire wealth deprived us the, the the right to do the same thing, because they were they were acquiring our, our wealth, and then when we asked for it today in reparations, they pushed back. Um, and so, yeah, um, we've always been uh, about rebellion, resistance, 
and resilience. Um, you know, that resilience is important because we're still here. You know, we're sitting here doing what we're doing, um, you know, and we, we're, we're in our way, uh, in our own way, you know, um, rebelling because, you know, come, <laughs> come, come Wednesday, <laughs> the fight is going to get a hard, a lot tougher. In my opinion, I, you know, I, we'll, we'll see what Wednesday brings. And, you know, um, as, you, as um, you and Emily was in the initial exchange in going around this, what I'm um, characterizing, this long liberation struggle, that um, that there was some a segment or at different historical moments where um, enslaved Africans or African people um, took on the aggressive posture. Um, and, again, I see in the last conference that you had, you, you give – you know, they, y'all spoke to that. And and so what which raised the question for me, Elliot kind of raised it earlier, in a question of cultural retention, because I'm always interested in our organizational ability, right? And and I'm wondering, have in your historical narrative um, or, uh, you know, seen how those African people, especially you know, when we talk about from the 1600s to the 1700s, let's say 1650 to 1750, um, because you have rebellions going on um, there, do you see in dwellings or um, in historical narrative that you come across that the beliefs or practices that were um, traditionally um, African from the continent as they're accumulating, you know, this American culture, um, whatever that means, um, do you see in their organizing for this kind of um, more aggressive, um, um, free, liberating themselves, do you see any sense of African cultural um, practices in the organizing, say, when we look at Stono or we look at Denmark Vesey, um, is there... Um, are they empty vessels or do they come with other things that help them to be more aggressive than not just reacting to, but initiating um, efforts for their liberation? Hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. No, certainly not. Certainly not empty vessels, but I, I, I know maybe some of the, some of the more sickly ones didn't make it. You know, they found their uh, graves at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm. And then there are those who, um, you know, whose whose egos and pride, you know, got the best of them and, and, and say that, you know, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and they have jumped overboard. Um, um, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a form of, that's, that's a form of, of rebellion. Um, you know, the, the breaking of tools, um, that's a, that's a form of, that's a form of, of, of rebellion. Um, you know, all those, all those big houses didn't, didn't, didn't burn down accidentally. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a form of, of rebellion. Running away is a form of rebellion. You know, seeking your freedom through the courts is, you know, is, is, a, is another form. Um, you know, the, the songs, that have been passed down, you know, that took, uh, uh, some, some collective efforts of, of, of letting folks know, um, that, that is time. Now, 
a lot of a lot of stuff that 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 we think uh, we've been told that that happened uh, as some type of code or a fraternity or, or or something that secretive amongst enslaved people. You know, they 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 push that thing on us about the quilts. You know, you you go to the next house, you see a quilt hanging. You know, that's a, that's a safe house. You know, that's been that's been debunked. That's that's been proved. That's been disproven. Um, uh, you know, that's one of those attempts to kind of soften the um, soften the blow of of, of slavery. Um, but you know, we were we we were doing those things. You, you take the Stoner Rebellion. Um, they 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 took away as one result of of the Stoner Rebellion is that they took away the drum from us because they were uh, they were using drums to communicate to let folks know you know it's on it's it's it's, it's time it's time to do this um so as a result of that they they took away the drums um and they made it a rule they made it a law a state law that you cannot at no cost educate any enslaved person because if if we look at the rebellions if if we look at the ones that 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 happen it's usually an educated person, someone who 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 um, knows how to read and write, or both. You know, Nat Turner was a preacher, and and you know the number one question that I get from my visitors at Magnolia Plantation is it, it, not well. It's the number. It's in the top five. It's um, <clears throat> it's uh, were they educated, and 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 they and they come there with that with that want for them to be. Now the number one question that I get is were were they were, were the enslavers good slave owners? Of course, mm-hmm. the answer to that question is no. Um, <laughs> um, but but they come there wanting to 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 the to answer to that question to be yes. Some come there wanting the answer to be question to the question to be yes is because they learned what I learned that they were happy and and and, and enslavers were benevolent. But I I had the I had the want this the the a desire, the DNA to want to learn the truth. But, um, you know, it's okay for them to stay right where they were when they learned that, uh, uh, that crap. Um, so, you know, it's up to, it's up to me to do my part, um, you know, through, um, sleeping in these places and having these conferences. So yeah, the conference was about, um, uh, the stone of rebellion, uh, you know, rebellion, resistance and, and, and resilience. And all, all my part, the part I played was, I was like Geppetto. I was kind of like the, the puppet master. I, you know, I, I, the idea is mine, but, you know, I got this team that, uh, that, that makes it happen. You know, we, we vet, we, uh, we put out our call for proposals. We vet the presenters and, um, they come in and, and present. Uh, and yeah, you know, so that's, that's what we did with, with this conference. So the experts, you know, um, for the, you know, the rebellions are, you know, are those folks, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm just kind of got that bird's eye view of, of these things, these opportunities that I, I just make it, I just make them happen. Um, because that's, you know, that's a part of, of telling our stories, get the right people together to, to help you tell that story because folks are going to come at you. They're going to come at you hard. Um, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, uh, stay in that mindset that they're in, uh, that, uh, you know, they want to believe the things that, that, that they believe they, that they learn, but, you know, it's up to us to, uh, to, 
change their mind. Uh, but at least we've got the youth on our, most of the youth on our side. I can't say we all, we can't have them all. Uh, I thought we were making progress until, you know, Charlottesville, where those folks were marching through the University of University shouting, the Jews will not replace us. Um, and if you look at all these mass shooters, man, uh, you know, doing it for uh, the purpose of, of, of race. You look at Dylan Roof and what he did here in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, and it, it's it's interesting to me that for his inspiration in his manifesto, it, it, he had a lot of photographs of places that he visited just to get his inspiration. And a lot of those places that he visited were plantations. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh so, you know, I, I thought we were making progress with the youth. And then you get, I think, some general one out in Texas shooting folks uh, because of the color of their skin. Um, so, you know, we get, uh, uh, we, we still got work to do. We, 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 we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. But we've always been, you know, we've always been rebelling. You know, that's, you know, we got, we got Marvin Gaye. Uh, you know, in our lifetime, well, in mine, I don't know how old, uh, old you guys are. Um, you know, they were the protesters, man. They made our protest songs. You know, they, the struggle has always been there. Um, it's just that I, you know, I'm bringing attention to the root of it um, because, you know, we can't think, I hope people don't think that all these things that we're dealing with today happen in our lifetime. This thing has history. We, 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 we I, you know, as I started this conversation, this, this, this this racism, this white supremacy is baked into our existence. Um, it, it, you know, the, the, the mind of a colonizer is is to take what's not yours and, and make it yours and, and 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 make all the people like you. Um, and if you're not like them, then you you got to go. So you know that's the colonizer way of thinking. So we're we're always we also have to always have to be on the defensive. You know, Elliot, you see how um, it's what we've been talking about, um, Mr. McGill really brings out for us. I just we're going we're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Our guest this evening, historian of African American history, history consultant for the Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and the founder and director of the Slave Dwelling Project, Mr. Joseph McGill, is with us in conversation. You can join it also with a question or comment by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back. Brother Richard, on time for an awakening media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. 
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global you black family to join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us, or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, 
the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America. We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raft Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, Nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. For an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.09 on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, historian of African-American history, history consultant for the Magnolia Plantation in Charleston, South Carolina, and the founder and director of the Slave Dwelling Project. Mr. Joseph McGill is with us in conversation. You can join the conversation, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Uh, Mr. McGill just did a discussion uh, not too long ago, maybe a little over a month, a couple of months ago, on the Stono Rebellion and the Atlantic World. We're going to talk about some of those rebellions tonight with our guests. Uh, Mr. McGill. Yes, I'm here. And I knew that I kind of heard you downplay it with the with the brother Richard saying that um, you brought the experts in to talk about these things, and you were just a facilitator. Well, uh, you know, I'm not going to let you get away with that one. I want you to <laughs> I want you to talk about some of these, and 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 you know, before we go to Stono, because according to historical accounts, that happened in 17. Uh, 39, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Let's look at New York. I think according to um, accounts, that's the first or one of the first large ones that took place in this country, and it happened in the North. Um, the New York 
a state rebellion that happened in 1712. And I noticed when I read some accounts in reference to that, that the situation in New York was similar to the situation of Denmark Vesey and what went on there in Charleston. And the reason I'm saying that is, let let me read just a a little portion here to kind of set it up. Um, We're getting a little feedback on your end, Mr. McGill. I think that might be your volume might be turned up just a little high. Okay, let me, uh, I'll quit moving. (laughs) Oh, okay. Let me read because I notice a similarity here between the environment that was in New York at the time and the environment during the period of Denmark Vesey's rebellion. And let me just read this paragraph here and get you to kind of expand on that because I know that you uh, visited slave dwellings in New York City and among others. This, This says, in the early 18th century, New York City had one of the largest enslaved populations of any settlement in the 13 colonies. Slavery in the city differed from some of the other colonies because there was no plantation producing cash crops. Enslaved uh, blacks were domestic servants, artisans, dock workers, skilled laborers. Enslaved Africans lived near each other, making communication easy. They often worked among free black people, a situation that did not exist on most southern plantations, slaves in New York could communicate and plan a conspiracy more easily than among those on plantations. And and we can see that the environment when during this period when blacks had a monicum of freedom in New York, that uh, laws were instituted to monitor their movements. I think uh, according to this report in December 13, 1711, uh, the New York City Commons established the first slave market at Wall Street for the the sale and rental of enslaved Africans. Talk about it from that point, Mr. McGill, because I noticed that the quote-unquote society for our ancestors during that period in New York to me, both of them were enslaved, but you had a degree there of our ancestors that worked, didn't work plantations, but did other stuff, uh, according to this account. But they all lived among one another, similar to Charleston during the period of Denmark, Bessie. Would you agree uh, from your research or talk about it from your perspective? Yeah, and it would it would have been in more abundance there because of uh, you know the share you know the you know the population uh, more more people. Um, a, a situation also similar to what uh, Frederick Douglass experienced prior to him uh, freeing himself from from bondage uh, in in Baltimore. Um, yeah, though all that intermingling of of those two element of people, uh, free blacks versus uh, enslaved blacks, um, and then there's that other um, element that this brings to the equation is that 
this free labor is competing with paid labor. Um, and it's hard to compete with slave labor. Um, another thing that accounted for slavery ending uh, in those northern states earlier, um, because if you're going to establish a middle class, then slavery works against all that. Uh, these folks tr- who are trying to establish themselves in this middle class, they have the same skills as these people who are being enslaved that are being rented out to do the same things that they do. And of course they're being rented out for what, uh, only for what the uh, contractor or the person wanting the job done uh, to get done is he's going to pay that enslaver that one time fee just to, you know, rent people. Uh, These people are are not getting paid, but these same people are competing with, uh, uh, with with the uh, skilled labor that's there, usually white men. Um, so you know there might they may have been that uh, uh, an element of white men maybe spurring on the you know the enslaved people to to rebel or or, or, or do or, or do what they do. Uh, and this rebellion, you know, could have been uh, you know one of those things where the uh, the free population. Uh, is uh, of white men are rebelling against them. I know that happened again in New York when during the Civil War, the uh, the labor there were rioting against black men. But at that point, at that point in history, they were not enslaved. They were free black men, but they were rioting against them because they these black men were competing for the jobs that they had. Um, so, the, you know, there's, uh, I'm, I'm sure that, it, you know, the, the situation here in in Charleston uh, with Denmark Vesey, Denmark Vesey was a carpenter. They had a system in Charleston where, uh, and you talked about monitoring, monitoring the enslaved population. Well, the system in Charleston where they monitored them here in this city is that they had slave tags, slave badges that the enslaver would have to go to the courthouse and out of the city house or wherever and, and pay taxes, pay the price to purchase one of those tags. And those tags had to be worn by the enslaved person everywhere they went, because if they're challenged, if their movement is challenged, then they show that badge, and that badge has to be up to date because you have to renew it every year. You show that badge on that badge, it tells you, it tells what your job is, and it tells who you belong to. Um, so um, they had those way of, of ways of checking uh, checking them here. But even in that system, these enslaved people being so close to to, to free people, um, in the uh, in 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 the waterfront, the the water that's there. The opportunity to get on boats um, and um, and sail yourself to freedom. They made a law in Charleston, South Carolina, that if a, a, a ship should sail into the city of Charleston, and then there's there are black crewmen, free free men, crew, they're serving on the crew. They have to go to jail while the ship is in port. Those are those restrictive type rules that will be imposed on on free on, on free folks. So yeah, um, uh, I would imagine that um, the earlier riot uh, in New York had a a lot of those elements involved. 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know what? <clears throat> but, uh, let let me um, to kind of corroborate what you said. I'll read the rest of this this uh, couple of paragraphs. It says about twenty percent of the population were enslaved black people. Twenty percent of the population of New York during that period. The colonial government of New York restricted this group through several measures, requiring that that slaves carry a pass if traveling more than a mile from home discouraging marriage among them and prohibiting gatherings in groups of more than three people. A group of about 20 black slaves, the majority of whom were believed to be a con gathered on the night of April 6, 1712 and set fires to buildings on maiden lane near Broadway. While the white uh, colonialists tried to put out the fire the enslaved blacks armed with guns, hatchets, and swords attacked the whites. Eight whites were killed, seven wounded. Colonial forces arrested 20 blacks and jailed them. Six were reported to have committed suicide. Twenty uh, were put on trial. Uh, no, excuse me, 27 were put on trial, 21 of whom were convicted and sentenced to death, including one woman with child. 20 were burned 20 were burned to death and one was executed on a breaking wheel um before we go to to talk about uh, uh Charleston but some of these methods now I wasn't familiar with this breaking wheel did, did, have you run across any of that in some of your ventures to different areas and looking at different things uh, surrounding our ancestors this breaking wheel. What what was that, uh, Mr. McGill? Are you familiar? Um, no, I, I'm not. But I would I would think by looking at movies and Hollywood and some of the stuff they just pull some them of the image apart. that that I that I see, uh, I would imagine it's 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 a it's a torture, um, uh, probably a method of of, of stretching you. Okay. Um, you know, laying you, you your back is is on the is on the on the wheel part and your, I guess your arm is, is stretched as far and, and, and your legs are also on that device and you, they stretch you, but maybe, I don't know. I'm I, guessing here. Yeah. Um, so no, I'm not, but I, I know that um, a lot of folks come to sites, you know, I used to work at the old slave art museum. Um, a lot of people come looking for devices things of torture, you know, um, uh, auction blocks, um, branding irons, whips, things that would have been used to, um, you know, torture or, or discipline is a better word. Um, the enslaved people. Um, but yeah. Before can I, can I ask but, a question but, before you go on, Elliot? Richard, let, oh. let, let, me, let me throw this in, because I, and I'm pass it right to you. I noticed something in some of, some of the early reports. Um, when I was reading about uh, uh, Gabriel Prosser, uh, reading about the New York Rebellion, and a few others, they knew exactly where our ancestors came from. In this report I just read, they said that the the, insti- the quote unquote instigators of this New York uh, revolt was a con. They talked about Denmark, Ves- uh, uh, Gabriel Prosser being uh, 
Yoruba or Agun. So they knew exactly where our ancestors came from and where they brought them from. It's our people that, you know, because of uh, what has happened to us and the damage that has occurred that we don't know uh, the background of our ancestors, but they seem to have known exactly where our ancestors came from. And yeah, and that gave rise to the thought that, um, you know, you, you don't want enslaved men from, from that place. Uh, I was not wise to bring enslaved men from, from that particular place. Uh, if, if, you know, if, if you call them out like that, because it's, you know, the same applied here at these Southern plantations. The thing about the, the, the Southern plantations, they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're getting these uh, people out of Africa more abundantly and a lot longer than they did in, in New York. Um, so, yeah, um, these rice planters, these rice planters wanted those people to from Africa to come from where the rice grew became, because they came with the skills, the knowledge. Um, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like a mail order. Um, you know, you could, you could order, um, make these deals with these ship captains or these trading companies, these uh, enslavers, and um, uh, you know they can get you the enslaved person that you wanted. If you look at some of these ads uh, of some of the manifests of these ships, or some of the uh, they call them uh, broadsides that advertise enslaved people, they usually tell you where they're from in Africa. But that goes back into what you just what you just described. You know, if he's from that place, then you probably don't want to um, spend your money there because he's highly likely to revolt or inspire people to. <laughs> so there's that. I, I was uh, looking at the Stono Rebellion, which you kind of uh, the jump off point to some of your uh, lectures. And it said that the Stono uh, Rebellion, uh, most of the the uh, our ancestors was from the central kingdom of Congo. So they, again, they knew exactly where they were pulling our ancestors from. Go ahead, Richard. I'm sorry. No, I just wanted to say, Mr. McGill, was there any um, in um, staying over in dwellings? Did you stay over in any dwellings in New York? Is there any dwellings in New York from um, um, that you had actually visited? And and where were there if there was? Oh yeah, many. In New York, um, I stayed in New Paltz, Rye, Shelter Island, Long Island, the Hudson Valley, and the Bronx. New York abolished slavery in 1799, um, but it was prolonged. Last person freed in New York was 1827, and in 1703, 40% of New Yorkers were slave owners. So yeah, I've stayed in some places in New York. And was the construction of the place as far as um, where enslaved people stayed, even though their um, the labor output was different, as Elliot described, was the like were they primarily in homes um, and attics that was brought up earlier? Um, what, what was the living arrangement in the places that you stayed in? Usually attics. Um, in um, when I stayed on Long Island, I stayed up in the attic. Uh, uh, they had an enslaved person, Jupiter, Jupiter Hammond. He had a last name. Um, he was, a, and he, he published, he, he wrote, he wrote a, he wrote books, he wrote a, at least one book um, as an enslaved man, which was quite unique. Uh, he was one of the 5% of enslaved people who, who was educated. 
Um, so yeah, um, some places where I stay in Connecticut, they call it a garret, but it, to me, it's an attic, and there was a bat in it too. Um, so <laughs> yeah, uh, most of the, most of the places in the in the in the northern states, the slavery was was more intimate in the sense that um, the enslaved people were usually in the in the attics or the basements. Are in the uh, so, but there are places you take Cliveden, um, where uh, in Philadelphia, there the uh, the kitchen, the kitchen is separated from the house, but it's close to the house. Um, same would have applied at Stenton, uh, all you know, all the slavery that existed in uh, in those northern states. Usually, you know, there's a nice, beautiful mansion and they have a, a, a kitchen, a separate building. Uh, at least one separate building, uh, if not more. Mm-hmm. And some have carriage carriage houses also where the enslaved people stay with the carriages and sometimes the horses. Um, so mm-hmm. there's there's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to, to since you since Ellie brought up about the rebellion in New York to see what was the living conditions in that area. Yeah, and it was colder. Um, so, you know, that's what I, that's another thing that uh, uh, contributed to slavery ending earlier in those northern states. You know, they weren't conducive to an agrarian society. Um, you know, they're they're more apt to be, you know, industrial. Um, yeah. The. Um... I, I read in uh, David Walker's publication that now he was, according to what he wrote, uh, he was from the Wilmington, North Carolina area, but he got a lot of his education and learning from Charleston. And from what he indicates, when things kind of fell apart, so to speak, uh, during uh, the uh, prosecution and trial and mur- and and. Uh, execution of Denmark Vesey that he was able to leave there and go to Boston. And he mentioned some of the people that was involved in the study group that he was in. If I'm, um, cause I've, I've read it, it's been a while ago, but he mentioned Morris Brown, uh, and a few others. Did, have you run across any information, uh, visiting any sites in Wilmington, North Carolina or in Charleston itself that, Lends, uh, 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 I don't want to say credence because he he said that he was there, but just as uh, more uh, evidence of these men uh, learning from one another, gathering together. Is it any sites where they basically gathered themselves? And I'm talking about some of our enslaved ancestors. Well, you know, Denmark Vesey had mobility because he was a carpenter meaning he was highly likely educated because, you know, you got a cipher and all that stuff. Um, so, and, and, and he had mobility and he came to contact with, uh, you know, with, with a lot of people, you know, in, in some cases, co-conspirators who may have had the ability to, you know, not, not be the one that was one of the ones that were, were, were hung. Uh, some of these enslavers, when their uh, enslavers are hung, their their property is lost. So most of those enslavers are going to 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 try to at least 
strike a deal where they could sell the enslaved pe- person away from there. Or, or if you are maybe a free black and, and, and you were, were you know, one of the co-conspirators from that angle, you may have the ability to know that, you know, I can't stick around here. Eventually they're going to, you know, this, this, this trail is going to lead back to me. So you got to, you're going to do, you're going to do all within your powers to, you know, to hightail it out of there. Um, but you know, by, by whatever means necessary. And, and if you're free, then you got more means available to you. Uh, if you're enslaved, of course, then your, your, your chances of, of escape is, is less. So, yeah. Um, but Wilmington um, itself, I have uh, stayed at a uh, place in at Wilmington, Bellamy Mansion, um, and um, it, it's, uh, it's it's very elaborate. It was built in 1859, um, and as far as slave dwellings go, they're pretty swank. You know, four stories high, brick, four compartments. Um, so, so here's the thing about that. I, I hear people say a lot of Civil War. Reenactors. I'm a civil. I'm a civil war reenactor. A lot of Confederate civil war reenactors tell me that uh, civil war was unnecessary. It was on its way out. But you know, if they were to look at this nice, beautiful building built in 1859 and this nice swank slave dwelling built in 1859, that man had gone into some serious debt um, in the hopes that this thing was going to last a lot longer than than it did. Um, so it, it, uh, it is possible that, um, you know, the gentleman got into Wilmington and, 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 and managed to exist there um, in whatever status he existed. Okay. Um, you, you know, you mentioned about uh, um, some of the men that were involved in the re- some of these rebellions of our ancestors were sold instead of uh, being executed. And that <laughs> I kind of seen that when I was looking at the aftermath of, um, of Gabriel, Pro- of, 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 of uh, Gabriel Prosser. Um, and it talked about what happened the days uh, after his capture and his execution, that several of the men that were involved. And in fact, I'll read it. Um, Uh, it says, uh, and I'll read a couple of these paragraphs because I think it's important for the listening audience. During the spring and summer of 1800, Gabriel planned uh, a revolt that intended to end slavery in Virginia. Plans were made with enslaved people over 10 counties and cities of Richmond, Norfolk, Petersburg, Virginia. Hundreds of uh, slaves from central Virginia, it was expected to march into Richmond and take control of the Virginia state armory and the Virginia state capital. The plans was to hold Virginia's governor, James Monroe hostage so they could negotiate for their freedom. Uh, on August 30th, 1800, the planned day of attack, heavy rain flooded the streets of Richmond and the creeks in central Virginia. Two enslaved people told their owners, Mosby Shepard about the plans. Shepard warned Governor Monroe, who called out the state militia. Gabriel escaped down river to Norfolk 
but was spotted and betrayed by another slave named Billy King. More than 70 enslaved men were arrested by law enforcement for conspiracy and insurrection. Gabriel was returned to Richmond for questioning, but did not submit. Gabriel and his brothers, uh, his two physical brothers, I'm sorry, Gabriel, his two brothers, and 23 other men were hanged. One individual committed suicide before the hanging. Eight men were moved or sold outside of Virginia. Two men uh, received their freedom for informing uh, of their slaveholders on the plot. So uh, I see where, uh, I mean, it's exactly what you were saying. I guess in order to recoup their uh, investment, uh, some of these men were, were sold outside of Virginia so these men could recoup their money. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, and, and that goes back to um, slavery ending by law in, in those Northern States, you know, did these enslavers just say, you know, you're done. I'm done. You well, well, you're free. Or did they, you know, sell them, sell them because the law said you can't own them. It didn't say you can sell them. Uh, Mr. McGill, you mentioned uh, early in our conversation when we first started about uh, uh, taxing. And according to the tax laws in that period, they weren't allowed to tax on on our ancestors. Uh, The white slave owners couldn't receive uh, or be taxed for them until they were 12 years old. So yeah, they, 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 that vary, now that varied from state to state, but go ahead. You don't know. No, go ahead. The age there, that, that is. Go, go ahead. Uh, uh, because I, I want to see how, I mean, wh- what was their motivation to, to, to raise some of the youth till they were close to 12 and then sell them and then just keep this thing on? Or, I mean, how did they, what did they do to try to minimize their loss, so to speak? Um. Well, you know, you 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 certainly minimize your your loss by um, or, or you, maybe you, not you, you sell them. You you sell them. You know, you don't have to you don't have to pay the taxes on them, whatever that tax is, um, and you don't have to you know you don't have to care for them anymore because you know you you got to you got to feed them, you got to clothe them. Well, you should. Most enslavers fed them and. And, and gave them at least one outfit a year. And of course, you know, they provide a, a slave dwelling for them. And, you know, after 1808, you can't legally import them anymore. Sometimes, sometimes, rarely, you you you, you give them better health care. That means you bring in a doctor at least once a year. Um, so, you know, although it's free labor in the sense that, um, in the sense that the people aren't getting paid, uh, if you look at it from, from the, angle of the enslaver, you know, he is spending money. I mean, again, he is feeding them, although he's usually issuing them salt, pork, and cornmeal weekly. Um, that's not sufficient. That's why they have to supplement it with uh, what they grew in their gardens, what they could hunt and fish for, chickens and pigs um, um, that that they raised. Um, so, you know, enslaving people is is expensive, because a lot of times those enslavers didn't didn't own their those people the banks did, and you know if a if a crop does not come in one year that could mean bankruptcy, and you have to you know you 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 go 
when you go bankrupt, you have to you have to give up the farm, if you will. And and, and that's another way that, that families got broken up. Um, you know, um, they have these quick sales, they have these auctions. Uh, you, you know, a whole family get on an auction block, that person doing the, um, the bidding on that, on that family may only want one, one person from that, from that family. Um, but you know, he buys a whole package, takes the one he wants out of that package and sells the rest. Um, so, so there, so yeah, there's, there's, there's always expenses involved in, in, enslaving people. And, uh, you know, Part of that is paying the taxes on them. You know, the government, the government's got to get theirs. Now, how that was, you know, how that was uh, calculated, I don't know. But that brings up a, a good thought. You know, a lot of these um, companies, the insurance companies that still exist today, had their roots in that period in history, and they insured people. A lot of the banks that still exist today had their roots in that period in history. And... You know, they, they, they held a mortgage to, to enslave people. Um, some of the newspapers were running ads. Uh, the, let's see, well, who else was, who, who there, there were, oh, Brooks Brothers. Brooks Brothers was selling um, clothing, a, a, a cloth, or both, to enslavers. And they're still around. Um, so, uh, you know, there's all kinds of opportunities to seek reparations um and you know this may one of the, maybe one of the means to do that because a lot of folks when you talk about reparations they they talk about you know they talk like it's it's coming out of their pockets um it doesn't have to you know if 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 we look at these companies that were around then that still exist if you look at the fact that there are uh historic sites that once enslaved people and people pay to get there, get into those places. People have wedding at some of these places. Uh, I think that um, if if a portion of what they pay to get into there or have their wedding can go to a fund that uh, goes to the descendants of those who are enslaved there, you know, I'm not saying give them a check. You know, maybe provide a scholarship for our scholarships for some of the descendants of those who were enslaved there. You know, I think that would be. Um, I think that would be taking this thing to the next level. Richard. I wanted to, um, you know, I'm still stuck on um, this maintaining a long um, liberation. I'm calling it a liberation struggle and looking at from, say, from um, the Stono Rebellion to Denmark VC. And I just, you know, just to get your feedback, Mr. McGill. Um, so, now, um, Elliot had brought up about David Walker in South Carolina, and I'm wondering um, what I see, you know, looking at the website and looking at the conference and the, pa- the paper that's um, placed on it, and I, and, and I advise everyone to go and, and look at that. This was your seventh conference? Is this, is that's the understanding I have? Is this the seventh conference that um, the um, Slave Project had put put together? Is that? that is, yeah, the seventh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering because um, I'm looking when you characterize the Atlantic, because a lot of enslaved people came from Barbados early on. And and I'm wondering, um, have you seen the connection between, um, and they were engaged in rebellions, 
and then um, coming to South Carolina early on, which makes the Stono being engaged in rebellions going to towards Florida and then Denmark VC. Do you, um, as you narrate or as you look over even what was put together, do you say that, would you say that it's a continuous um, war struggle um, by Africans from the, you know, well, that is because the, um, in Jamaica and in Barbados, there's constant revolts. And then in um, South Carolina, um, there's constant, um, I'm calling revolts. Would you say that that's a continuation of the same struggle? Um, and, and is there communication between those individuals who are in the islands and those who are in the sea islands, say in South Carolina, North Carolina. Yeah. Well, you know, well, sometimes, well, all the time is human nature, you know, is, is human nature is human nature to enslave just as resist that, uh, just as to resist that, uh, in, in, in enslavement, you know, in, in, in the case of, Africans, of course, you know, um, you know, we were we we were enslaving each other in in, in Africa, but that Africa, that slave in Africa was different. It was it was modeled on chattel. You know, we you know, we were warring and we we defeated other Africans and and we enslaved those other Africans. But it's usually for seven years, and any child born to an enslaved African woman would be from that point forward. It was not chattel. It, um. Uh, um like here in the United States, these folks here in these United States took it to another level. Um, you know, um, you know, they, they, they came over here and, 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 and communicated, uh, well, made an attempt to communicate with the natives and, 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 and to a system where nobody owned the land it, that, why was that necessary to own the land? Um, but of course they, thought it was the thing to do and they took it and and they made it and 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 they made it all theirs. So this thing here uh in this in this new world was chattel perpetual. They designed it so it was supposed to last forever. They had this term for enslaved people that they that they first enslaved in the Caribbean islands before they brought them to the United States. They called them seasoned slaves. Because again, they had served uh, as enslaved people in the Caribbean islands before they came here. But on those islands, there were always those rebellions, as you as you alluded to in in the question. But that goes back to that human nature, that 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 human um, desire to be free, uh, you know, not to be restricted by by people who didn't look like you uh, and, 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 and saying and, and labeling you as inferior or, or less than, less than, um, you know, that, uh, uh, that resistance, you know, was there on those, on those islands. You know, there was this uh, situation uh, right off the island of, uh, right off the coast of uh, Georgia um, where, uh, you know, enslaved people, you know, the song that, you know, before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. You know, that 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 came from this incident where these enslaved people got off the 
got off the boat and they just started walking into the water and they, and they, and they drowned themselves. Um, and you know, some still chained together. They, they walked into the water and, and, and drowned themselves. So, so there, that, that we, that resistance was, was there. Uh, another thing that we have to think about is this, the colonizers came in and, and, uh, attempted to enslave the natives here. Well, it didn't work. So if they didn't did, did, if they didn't annihilate them through war or through disease, they gathered gathered them up and took them to the Caribbean islands and enslaved them there. So so now they're in the mix over there, you know, also also being enslaved. So they're resisting also um, this 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 colonizing effort to. Um, you know, to make everything theirs. And, and if you didn't look like them, you weren't part of the ruling class or you couldn't share the wealth. Um, so, yeah, that, uh, that it's always been there. Wherever the, the, the diaspora took us, rebellion was there. Uh, this is a, similar to the question I get often when I'm working at Magnolia. They ask me, well, did the, uh, was the Underground Railroad near here? I say, yeah, the Underground Railroad was where slavery existed because a lot of people think of the Underground Railroad as somebody trying to escape north. Well, it was more to it than that. The Stoner Rebellion proved that. It proved that if you made it south um, to Spanish-held Florida, you would be free because Spanish-held Florida was trying to disrupt everything north of them. The Spanish were just as vicious as uh, colonizers as the English were, if not more. But they did make this uh, this promise to enslave people that if they got to Florida, they could be free because then now they could join their ranks and they could go against the uh, the, 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 the the English. That was the Spanish intent. But if you you know if if you out west, it's best that you keep going west. A lot of folks say remember the Alamo, and then they talk about Davy Crockett and 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 the guy who invented the Bowie knife. That's not what the Alamo was about. The Alamo was about, but Mexico not wanting slavery to come any further west than the than the enslavers already brought it. That's what that. That's how I remember the, the Alamo. That's how it should be remembered. Um, and of course, we know North. There came a time with that fugitive, fugitive slave law that you better keep going north. You better keep going to Canada if you wanna if if you wanna be free. And I know a lot of your listeners are familiar with the movie 12 Years a Slave. That was a true account. This man was born free in a northern state, and he was captured and, 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 and taken south and enslaved for 12 years, 12 years. So, um, And we go back to Denmark Vesey. Denmark Vesey's, uh, uh, his inspiration came from what happened in Haiti and, and the fact that Haiti was that first Caribbean country to obtain their freedom through, you know, through through warfare. Um, now they've been paying for it ever since. I mean, literally paying for it ever since. Um, but um, you know, they they showed courage. They showed that it could be done. And word of that spread, and it spread quickly. Um, uh, you know, over the means of 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 um, uh, of way the word traveled. Um, so yeah, there's all there was all that way, ways that effort wherever we were. There was always resistance. And, and the reason why I'm, I'm posing and, and, and kind of maybe, um, um, you know, I'm beating this is because 
um, the the way the historical narrative is done and, and is that these are isolated incidents of liberation more than um, a, a uh, strategy by a people um, who are in different um, domains or territories under different um, conditions, but there is still some kind of communication going on about um, self-liberation. And, and, and David Walker is an example of this communication, you know, and threat. And also when you mentioned about those sailors um, coming in and they have to be able, cause in some, if I'm not mistaken, some sailors, they couldn't at some point, they, and I believe that South Carolina, they couldn't come off the ship um, because they didn't want them to be intermingling with, um, the enslaved population that was there because of the fear of resistance. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make, trying to see that when we do our, our interpretation, do we treat it as these isolated incidents of people, um, looking out for their own self-interest more than a grand strategy, um, happening in different places at different times? Um, trying to liberate and Haiti being the most successful in actually winning over, over all three of them, the English, the Spanish, and, and the was it the Dutch, the English, French. the French, and the Spanish, and the Spanish, French. French, you know, um, being the most successful and then still being a symbol that, um, feared white plantation owners. So that's that's the reason why I'm I'm, I'm posing and, and trying to get um, some feedback. But you, if I may, um, Elliot I, I, and, and, and Mr. McGill, I'd like to go back um, and, and thought question about these breeding farms um, <clears throat> or places, and ask you, um, you you gave characterization of you know how people um, when you mentioned about dormitories. Um, and we, you mentioned about definitely what will have to happen after 1808. Um, is there, have you come across, um, structures that still are in existence that were, um, not just people in their plantations, maybe quote unquote breeding, but people who were in the business of breeding? Um, people for sale, especially after 1808. Is there, you know, um, we, uh, Elliot brings up about Virginia. Is there other places that you're aware of that there are structures that are remnants of that business? Well, well, they all were by default, but specifically <laughs> in that business. Um, there, there is a, there, there's a, there's a, a, a place I have not been there physically, but I'm, 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 I'm on his trail. Uh, in, in Southern Illinois, people would escape into that free state and then this gentleman would capture them and put them to work in the salt mines. And he also had a breeding business. And then there, there is a house, a physical space. It used to be open to the public, but, but I guess they thought their story was too, too, too hard. They, they closed it down. Um, mm. Um, but I, I I do know of that place. Um, I do know that uh, also that um, um, I do know also that Kentucky. Uh, now I haven't been to any physical site that uh, that done it. And although I've been to a few places in Kentucky, I know that 
you know, Kentucky was a breeding state. I also know that um, uh, you get you get Natchez, Mississippi. That is a um, that's that's a place where uh, a very large uh, amount of people were uh, being transported for sale. They were being transported from there. There's a place called Forks in the Road. Um, and then they were being transported to this place to be to be sold. Um, so I know of, I know of that place. You know where where a lot of folks are are, are, are gathered. There's a place in Charleston where I used to work uh, at the um, Old Slave Mart Museum, where uh, the person uh, people who were um, uh, people who were being uh, held for sale you know, maybe through bankruptcy, waiting for auction, you know, they would all be stored in this, in, in the same building. And, um, look, of course they tore that building down. It's, it's long gone. Um, so that's the only physical place that I'm aware of is the one that I'm trying to get to in, in Southern, Southern Illinois. Mm. Well, thank you for that. Mm. Uh, Mr. Miguel, we're coming up to the end, end of our program. Uh, before we leave tonight, um, I want you to give out any information that you want to in reference to how people can participate, how they can stay overnight in some of these structures where our ancestors were to join you in some of these discussions and ex- exchanges. Uh, how can they get involved? Yeah. Um, several ways, and yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta move on. I just got a note that my wife is gonna be pulling up to the train station. <laughs> oh, here soon yeah. I, to, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to get you in trouble. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so there, I put, I put the website there in the chat. Um, you know, slavedwellingproject.org. dot If, if, if you want a kind of tamer version of, of what we do, um, you know, the website is the place. Um, uh, you can you can follow us on Facebook, you know, Slave Dwelling Project. We're also on Instagram, uh, and uh, uh, let's see, be on Instagram. We're on what else are we on? Right now, we're on Twitter. Right now, uh, you know that may that may end soon. We'll see where that goes, mm-hmm. um, according to Elon Musk. Um, and let's see, we're also. I just started doing uh, TikTok. Uh, you know, appealing to a, a younger audience. Um, yeah, just on uh, just on TikTok. So those are the those are the ways that you could get us. And our TikTok is Joseph McGill five four two. Twitter is you know at Slave Dwelling. Facebook is uh, Slave Dwelling Project. So uh, and you can Google it. You can Google the Slave Dwelling Project, and it'll pop up. We've got a very big digital footprint. Let us know when you're back up here in this area, Mr. McGill, and uh, we'll sit down and have lunch. And speaking of that, I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, our 2024 conference will be in a northern state. Don't know what that northern state is right now. Come Philly. Come on, come on, come on. Come to Philly. <laughs> well, you know, you got, you got, I've stayed in two places in Philly, so, hey, it, it could happen. It could happen. Um, so, you know, stay tuned. All right. Let us know. And, uh, uh, your numbers, I, I got your number in my phone now, so we'll be in touch. All right, beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thank right, you. Take care. And thank you again right. for your work. All right, you're welcome. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Richard, 
Yes, sir. Interesting conversation. Um, you know, uh, documenting, you know, it, uh, knowing some of his work and, and documenting uh, uh, the struggles of our ancestors, uh, uh, their living conditions, um, some of the things that he, you know, in private conversations, the artifacts and all that's still in some of these structures. And you don't have to dig down in the soil that far to find other things that our ancestors left. It, it's it's really interesting. I've, I've never stayed, uh, you know, or, or, or joined him in, in, uh, in his work of staying in one of the structures. But uh, uh, it just shows you that uh, some of the dedication of our people that, that want to keep these things alive and how important it is to keep it alive. Right, right. And, and, you know, as I was, as I was, um, saying, you know, as we move to, um, this, you know, the, the nation state celebrating its 250th anniversary, and I will be, um, redundant every opportunity. I think, um, like what work, um, um, Mr. McGill and others are doing, um, becomes important because we have to, I, I believe, we should stop making our narrative that we are reacting to something more than acting on something. Um, yes, um, we, we were captives, but at the same time, by us um, fighting against that captivity from day one on the continent and here, we created um, things, ideals about struggle, we created organizational, you know, um, structures um, to where they were effective, so effective they had to put in laws. They had to do create educational process. They had to they had to react to us, and that that reaction. They always talk about European global. Uh, you know, this was global amongst African people um, in different places whether it be the Caribbean, whether it be in South America, whether it be in England, whether it be in, you know, even um, those colonies that they created and definitely here in North America. These, you know, when you brought up about New York in the 1712, you know, or, or Stono River, these, they may seem like isolated, but they were a part of a broader effort of African people responding to this condition, you know, we call them alpha disruption, you know, and we should t- tell our story to that, even to the point of of citizenship being a tool, not something they making us, but something we use, if I'm making any sense. Because this thing that we just was passive, you poke us and we holler, you push us and we move, that makes us inanimate objects compared to actors in our own life um, experience as a people over time and space. You're absolutely right, Richard. Um, uh, and, and and let me say something to kind of further what you're saying about the importance of not only our historical narrative, but the history of the people that we're dealing with. See, if we understand that, and understand our historical uh, uh, analysis of of our struggle, then we we will know what we have to do because our, our ancestors left a blueprint for us. Mm-hmm. Richard, let me let me read this. Two things that I notice 
when I was reading the accounts of two rebellions in particular, Gabriel Prosser and Nat Turner. Um, and let me read this and see if you notice something there that uh, to kind of strikes you. Um, and and I and I read this part when Mr. McGill with, was was with us, but I'll read it again. It says when Gabriel, after he was captured, after he informed or was informed on, and this man said that he saw him. It says Gabriel was returned to Richmond for questioning, but he did not submit. So they did more than question. He was tortured. Later on, Gabriel, his two brothers, and 23 others were hanged. One individual committed suicide before the hanging. And eight men that were involved were moved or sold outside of Virginia. And two men received their freedom for informing to their slave masters about the plot. But this is what I want you to kind of give me your analysis on. The rebellion was reported in newspapers across the country. You, you with me, Richard? Yes. Mm-hmm. The rebellion was reported in newspapers across the country. James Monroe and Thomas Jefferson were concerned about the optics of having so many people executed. Jefferson said, and, and this is a quote, other states and the world at large will forever condemn us if we indulge in a principle of revenge. The Federalists argued that the rebellion occurred as a result of the Democrat-Republican Party's support of the French Revolution. Wait, wait a minute, Richard, do you see something uh, 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 like a deja vu? Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. That yeah. they made the freedom struggle of our people and the execution of the brothers and sisters involved in this freedom struggle a political issue mm-hmm. that revolved around them. Now, you, I mean, you because you 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 know history better than me. This Federalist Party was the precursor to what we know now as the Republican Party, right? It was a conservative wing of their, and this this Democrat Republican Party was became the Democratic Party, right? So they made this a political issue. The optics of killing up all these blacks might make us look bad in front of the world. That's basically what he said, right? Right. Because of the French, because of the French uh, Revolution was about um, them over the. Um, or quote unquote, the 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 people overcoming the monarchy. You know, they wanted to have more control over you know this liberty, liberty, and you know having this liberty. And and these guys created this America on the notion that they were already a liberal democratic society. And and you know, so that if they are seeing. And it's interesting because the Federalist Party, those guys, Hamilton and, and Washington, particularly, and, and, and uh, Morris, who was the financier, they'd seen themselves as the ruling elite. That was the tension between the, the planner South and the bankers 
were financiers north and the whites who didn't have land who were who were given this land because they were saying like well why are we going to fight for to for to free ourselves from the king and y'all going to set yourself up as kings but financial kings financial a uh, finance but that was that was the discussion around the de- development of the constitution so uh, to your point the imagery of them um suppressing liberty um or african people liberating themselves is not bad optics then it wasn't bad it was bad optics during world war 1 world war 2 vietnam when black folks were again in this liberating struggle to assert themselves their concern was how they looked at how they were being looked at by others mm-hmm. outside of the U.S. Yes. Yes. Same thing now. The same thing now. When you see, uh, when when it showed on the television and other mass media, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Amon Albury being viciously slain, uh, they were concerned more about the optics of how it would look in the world instead of doing right by people. It's the same. It's history repeating itself, Richard. Is is this day? Now, 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 wait a minute. Now, here, here's another one because it's another similarity, and it has everything to do, again, with politics. This is after Nat Turner is executed, and I'm gonna read this. It's a couple of paragraphs. And remember when we talked about this subject, Richard, a lot that. European, it's been a Negro, and I'll use the Negro, it's been a Negro problem ever since we've been here. It's a strange dichotomy. They wanted our people to work, but they didn't, never envision them being free in society. Mm-hmm. And when you had a uh, a bunch of them, quote unquote, with a monicum of freedom in society, they wanted to remove them because they didn't want them here. Several of their popular politicians, including Lincoln, said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, look at this incident that happened in re- repercussion to Nat Turner, and I'll read it. It says the Commonwealth of Virginia eventually executed Nat Turner and 56 other black people were hanged on November 11th, 1831 in Jerusalem, Virginia. He was decapitated. His body was dissected and flawed his skin being used to make purses and souvenirs. Others estimated that 120 blacks were killed. Most were not involved with the rebellion. Now, this is by the Commonwealth because during the period where they were looking for Matt, it was like two months. I think he was in the dismal swamp. Right. They were basically kicking indoors. I'm just bringing it up to modern-day terms. No knock warrants. They was kicking indoors. They was looking for him. So it said that leading up to this point, when that was killed, along with the others when they were hanged, that 120 blacks were killed. Most of them were not involved with the rebellion. That was by the Commonwealth of Virginia. But then it stated white militia and mobs attacked blacks in the area, killing an estimated 200 men, women, and children many of whom were not involved in the revolt. So you had 
upwards of 500, according to his accounts, upwards of 500 people were killed, men, women, and children, and the overwhelming majority of them wasn't even involved in what they consider the revolt of Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the, the last part. It says, after the rebellion, Virginia legislators targeted free blacks with a colonization bill, which allocated new funding to remove them to Africa and a police bill that denied free blacks trials by jury and made any free black convicted of a crime subject to sale into slavery and relocation. Now, this is in 1831. Decades before any 13th Amendment. Right. Right. I, I'm just saying, you know, see, see, this this stuff is just history repeating itself. And a leopard doesn't change, can't change his spots. He doesn't become striped like a tiger. These behaviors by the quote-unquote children of these former enslavers doesn't change. It might become a little more modern, but the the intent of it hasn't changed. You got all this talk now about uh, the two uh, brothers, uh, Kyrie Irving and West, Kanye West, about their language is hurtful. Now, we just went over on Friday's program where a lot of these banks and all, the banks that they divested from uh, Kanye West, they not only get uh, uh, hurtful language. That's what they're talking about. They, they, his statements is hurtful. He didn't hit anybody. He didn't physically hit anybody. But those mm-hmm. banks did things to destroy black lives, redlining, but investing mm-hmm. in private prisons, lobbying legislators for tougher prison sentences to help their bottom line. Going to the government, their brethren, and, and demanding that they didn't want to give debt relief to black farmers because it would hurt their bottom line. That's more than any hurtful speech. That's actions. Yep. And evidently, a lot of these things, you just heard Mr. McGill talking about CRT, which basically they don't want to talk about a lot of the things that they did to our ancestors. That's not, I mean, that's not hurtful language to black people. It's just as hurtful, so-called, as these statements that suppose. And and plus, if somebody says something to me that's historically inaccurate, the first thing you do is you go to history and point it out. Your response mm-hmm. shouldn't be, oh, that's hurtful language. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, if I if I made a statement saying, the Native Americans broke every treaty that was made with Europeans. They were the ones that were violent. They broke every treaty. I mean, I don't expect a Native American to say to me, oh, that's hurtful language. They would go to history and show me that I'm absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. So it would seem to me that they would go to history and point out that these men are wrong, that these things didn't stem in Africa that the people who was first named this weren't Africans. You would be able to go to history and point it out. I don't want to hear this stuff about hurtful language. What does that mean? 
Black people get hurtful language thrown at them all the time. All you got to do is turn on your television and look at these political commercials that they have running. And I'm quite sure they run in every city mm-hmm. showing young black people, older black people firing guns, being violent. And then it shows white families cowering, cowering in the corner. Or they or showing the white family in the subliminal messages they need to be protected from these people. Black leadership sees these commercials. They don't demand that these people stop showing them because it's hurtful. All blacks ain't criminals. All blacks ain't running around abusing people. Mm. In fact, if you do the percentages, I'm quite sure that we ain't no more violent than Europeans. In fact, they would be more violent. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm just I'm just th- throwing that out there in reference to oh, all yeah. this stuff about, you know, he's he hurt my feelings. It's hurtful language. And then you got blacks in celebrity status, whether they're celebrities, whether they're politicians or whether they're news people or even other sports celebrities talking about, oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a hurtful language. Come on with all this. Come on with this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll be dealing with this topic because yeah, it's not over. No, not by a long shot. <clears throat> uh, before we leave, Richard, tonight, just want to give uh, the lineup on time for an awakening media. Um, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshie. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. 11. Uh, Richard, you want to you grab one? Oh, go ahead. Let me let me go. Call up. What's your name? Where you calling from? Hey, how you doing? It's brother Maurice. Hey, sir. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I just wanted to make a quick comment on some stuff that you, just that you were talking about. One of my boys is down in Georgia, and he sent me a uh, he sent me a, a billboard that was talking about Democrats hate us, and that goes in line with the whole philosophy that they're trying to replace us and all these different things of that nature. But within the conversation talking about um, Kanye West and and Kyrie Irving, I um I asked somebody a question, and of course nobody gave me the answer. I said, "Well, let me ask this question." There's a Jewish conservative named Edward Blum who has two cases sitting before the Supreme Court right now, dealing with affirmative action. Uh, students for fair admissions. Uh, against the University of North Carolina and then against the uh, Harvard University. I don't hear any Jewish people condemning him when he's trying to disenfranchise black people after, of course, after the Shelby County case, which he brought, after the uh, Fisher versus the University of Texas case, which they destroyed the Voting Rights Act, your preclearance and all those things of that nature. And I said, I don't hear a damn Jewish person or organization condemning him, Edward Blum, out of Texas. Because a lot of these corporations and, and these organizations, because a lot of these, Jew, these conservative Jews are supported by these corporations and are pushing this agenda to, 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 to do exactly what Trump talked about, take this country back. So now they're going to they're going to eliminate um, affirmative action. You know, you that you had um, Justice Thomas sit up there talking about uh, 
he doesn't even understand what diversity means. <laughs> I saw that. Uh, yeah, then you have Andy Co- Co- uh, Coney Barrett talking about how long is this supposed to be going on? How many years of, of affirmative action did, did you have compared to the number of years that black people have had affirmative action? With the limited number of people we're talking about that is actually impacted. You know, I wish that we had a collective mind that black people would say, okay, fine. You don't want us to go to those schools? Let's all turn and go to uh, go to our own schools and say the hell with it. Because, you know, they, people forget that we are a product, right? All of those brothers and sisters playing baseball and basketball and football, and these these these, uh, these uh, colleges have million-dollar contracts, billions of dollars being spent for, you know, for entertainment. Yet we would think that we could we could do something with that and say that we're not going to support them. If they don't want us in those schools, we ain't going there. So again, um, when we when we look at the Supreme Court, and I've said this on my show, and I will keep saying it, Edward Blum, a conservative Jew, has been attacking everything that Black people have fought for for since we've been in this country. All the rights and privileges that we wanted, he's destroy well, he's destroying it. And I don't hear uh, not one Jewish person saying anything about it, condemning him or, or attacking him at all. Now, now, and now, black people still, now, bro, Brother Maurice, now listen, I, I, t- to be honest, I don't expect them to, to attack him because it is what it is to them. The, the more right, important the thing is, is I'm, t- I'm saying well, that you can see the consistency is that well, no, 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 but this they is what, don't attack him, but we will attack our own. Yeah, but it, but this is what I'm saying. Your watchmen, your quote unquote watchdogs, they should be attacking him. Just the same way that these these folks attack those young men talking about, oh, you, you, you what you're saying is hurtful language. Where's your leadership? And when I say you, I'm doing saying this with tongue yeah. planted firmly in my, in my cheek. Where's your leadership to say, hey, Edward Blum, what you're doing is hurtful to black people. They're not saying anything. They're not saying anything. Yeah. And a lot of these media people get paid big dollars. What you doing, Brother you know, Maurice? You ain't getting paid no th- You don't have no big staff looking at these, just researching stuff for you and producers. But you, if you can get this information, they can easily get it. They have it. They know it. They're not saying anything. And again, I just another thing. I wish somebody could get a hold of Kyrie Irving and 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 he get a publicist or somebody to help you know kind of coach him with some stuff because it's very it's a very simple argument. I mean, they're talking about this particular uh, film that he posted online and talking about the impact of it. He never said a, a negative word about any Jewish person. He just posted a link about something that, that's an alternative view about who they believe are the true uh, Jewish people in this world. But the thing that, again, and we've talked about this before, and I'm going to raise this issue again because I went off on people on this particular topic. I said, let me tell you something. The, the post that... Uh, that uh, Kyrie Irving posted online doesn't even touch the impact of what uh, the anti-Semite that Shakespeare was. And and when you look at the Merchant of Venice and you look at all of the stereotypes, the, the imagery, the Shylock stuff that came out of that, which they still perform that all around the world is taught in every damn school and stuff. There's not even a, you hit the hypocritical 
And I said to myself, if he had somebody on his, I would have brought that up immediately and say, until you say something about that. But see, they won't say anything about that because white Anglo-Saxon Protestants ain't going to let you mess with Shakespeare. <laughs> they ain't going to let you take him down. But they, 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 and, and I remember, I know you and Richard remember when I sent you the original study that I, I found on that. Now they got people publishing articles talking about the Merchants of Venice shouldn't be there. But yet they're hypocrites, though. They ain't saying a word about that. And, that, and the impact of Shakespeare is a million times more than any post that Kyrie Irving ever put up. How dare you? And black people who sit up there and they, they, they glad hand and then attacking them and stuff. And now they're attacking, uh, you know, Floyd May- May- Mayweather because he said he's supporting Kyrie Irving. You know, he's not the only, he's about the only person. That's oh, I, you know what? I didn't see that. Else. I didn't see that. When did, when did that happen today? Um, I think it was yesterday. Okay. So, so they, and of course, you know, they ran out all of the black people and stuff to attack him immediately. Um, I think, uh, Shannon Sharp had something to say. I was like, you know, sometimes I wish y'all just would shut up. If you don't want to be on the bandwagon, just shut up. Don't say anything. You know, um, I'm frust- I'm frustrated because we don't understand the importance of our history. Like I'm, I'm looking at this 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 film. I don't know if y'all talked anything about this because I I just got got on late to y'all. Or I apologize, but you know we had, you know Emmett Till movie that's out, and we have um, Emancipation coming out, and. One of the things that bothers me sometimes is they always frame the conversation about Emmett Till was the catalyst of the civil rights movement. And I would argue with that and say that no, he was not. That wasn't the, the initial catalyst. There's one person that we forget about that um, really moved people. I mean, 40,000 people showed up at Madison Square Garden after what happened to him. And because of what happened to him, the president of the United States desegregated the military after forming the commission to talk about that. Most people don't ever talk about this person and he lost his eyesight because of what happened when they pulled him off a train down in South, I mean a bus in South Carolina and then beat him to the point where he lost his eyesight because they refused to give him treatment. That is Sergeant Isaac Woodard who died in 1993, who died in New York, buried out in Calverton National Cemetery. And I tell people, if you can get 40,000 people to show up in Madison Square Garden and support you, get the NAACP to, to attack finally and do something back then, and they desegregate, desegregate the military, and then it pushed people to, t- to, to sue and bring all the cases on. How do we not acknowledge that? And he said something that I thought was very powerful. They asked him, it later on in his life, they asked him, do you – if you could go back and change anything, like with you know, get your eyesight, do you, or was it even worth it for you to lose your eyesight? And he said, it is worth it for me for black people to stand up and fight. And we don't even remember him. Nothing even said about that. You know, you know, except for maybe uh, PBS doing a piece on him a couple of years ago. We don't remember him. Matter of fact, the, the shame of it is you got people in, in over in Britain writing articles about him. But we don't remember him. We don't acknowledge that. And in, in no disrespect to Emmett Till and what and his sacrifice in the movement, but I'm talking to people that they were other people before this. This is 1946. 1946 has happened to him. 
Emmett Till was 55. Mm-hmm. But it's not remembered. I just, and it, I, I'm going to get off because I know y'all, y'all getting ready to, to wrap up, but, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about this because I'll, I'll say it again. I don't apologize for loving black people. We have so much potential. We have so much that we can accomplish, but we have to also stand on the foundation of our history, understanding that those people, like you talked about, that met with General Sherman, those individuals that that, that, that uh, fought in World War One and World War Two, and we've been, I got flags, my grandfather fought in World War One, and stuff. You know, we got blood in this ground, and I'm not turning around and giving up a damn thing to anybody. I've earned it, especially for all these damn people that just showed up on the scene and, and never had to sacrifice anything. Black people have fought in every damn war, and we fought in the Civil War. 200-something thousand of us fought. So I'm, I'm tired of listening to these people talk about their damn country. What country? You wasn't even here when all of this stuff was going on. You've been here from day one. <laughs> Brothers, look, again, I thank you all for letting me vent a little bit. Y'all stay strong, stay safe, and stay, uh, safe and stay blessed, and I'm getting off and just listening to the rest of the program. Talk to you, brother. Take care now. Well, Richard, he said he said what he said. <laughs> uh, man, it's good to have old Brother Maurice uh, at his contribution. Um, again, before we go, let me uh, let me read that lineup on time for an Awakening Media Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. African perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting perspectives and conversation. On African Perspectives, that's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on Monday evenings, from 8 to 9, Black Therapy Central would host Dr. Mouya Kambon and Dr. Kamal Kambon. And from 9 to 10, Conversation Reparations is the first and third Mondays of the month. Uh, Tuesday, 8 to 10 p.m., Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers. Uh, on Thursday, on Wednesday, it's our time, the Black Farmers Program, and that's supposed to be starting up again in January, too. Um, Brother Eric, and they were involved in getting that project uh, kind of off the ground, and I think things are off and running now, so they'll be they'll be moving and grooving probably again in January. Fridays, Time for Awakening is back from 8 until, and from Saturdays, from 7 to 9, the Elders of Sankofa with Brother Alfonso Watkins as hosts. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon, Children playing after school. They seem to be so unaware. Oh, I know, I know the things that they'll soon have to take care of.
Children. 